0: It's great to be here this morning. Uh, first of all, it's, uh, it's, it's home. You know, I, I was talking to Roger before. Uh, yeah, Debbie and I, we're from Indiana. We probably still consider ourselves Hoosiers, if you really had to nail us down. Our children, however, are pure Minnesota. Okay, they, they, if you ask them where's home, it's Minnesota. Um, if they want to get back home, it's back to Minnesota. So, um, really, 21 years makes this home. This is uh, uh, it, it's great. But f- before we uh, moved here, I had been a youth pastor for a number of years in Indiana and Ohio, um, planted a church. So, I know what it what it's like to go through the uh, whole planting, birthing process of a vision of, uh, for a church and a community. Pastored that church for a number of years um, before getting the call to come to North Central. And yes, Roger was on his way out. And as I came in, 20 years, I was a professor and dean um, at uh, North Central. And about a year ago, God started doing something in our in my life, in our lives, and leading us to a a new journey. Now, one of the things that I've done over the years is I've started to write down kind of lessons that I learn in life, life lessons, um, and write them down to kind of, so not only would I remember them, because I often start repeating them a lot. My children will tell you there are certain things that I have said over their lifetime, over and over and over again, they could probably say them better than I do now. Um, they remember them better than I do. My memory goes away um, from students for over 20 years. So there are certain life lessons. And um, my wife has always encouraged me. She goes, you really need to uh, write those down, get them in a book, you know, kind of f- pass them around. And I, I, I thought that would be a great idea, except the first one is people are stupid. That's, the, that's that's my first life lesson. Um, now, I do have axioms that go along with my life lessons. So, lesson number one, people are stupid. Um, le- you know, the axiom to that is, um, and you can't fix stupid, um, but you can catch it. And I'm a people too. So, that reminds me that if I'm saying people are, st- I'm a people, which means I have to remember I better approach things Humbly realizing I can do, and I often do, stupid things, too. Um, My second pillar, I call them Pano's pillars, life's pillars, is that um, life is an adventure, so embrace the adventure. Do things that are unexpected. Do things that are out of your comfort zone. Just embrace the adventure. That's one my children probably remember more than anything. I love doing new things. And so when about a little over a year ago, God's starting to do a new thing in, in me, and I'm kind of like at first going, God, really, I'm a little older now, you know, when I was younger, making changes, you know, kind of... Uh, that." No, I can adjust. Now I'm kind of set in my ways. I like my habits and my rituals. For you to do something new in me, that's a little bit more adventure than I was asking for. But a little over a year and a half ago, um, God started changing things, changing things in me, and now um, I uh, started working with an organization called One Child Matters. It's a missions organization. Um, we sponsor children. I go around uh, speaking in churches and a gr- different groups, um, and I really describe my job as I'm the voice for over 40,000 children around the world in some of the poorest countries and the poorest conditions. Uh, we have projects in 14 different countries around the world uh, with over 40,000 children And uh, I get people to walk alongside those children to, first of all, minister to their physical needs to feed them, to clothe them, uh, to give them medical care, to help them in their circumstances and situations, to help them with their uh, education. We have uh, some of our projects are schools, some of them are orphanages, some of them are rescue homes, uh, some of them are after-school programs where all of our projects are connected to a local church and a local church pastor in those countries. But it's to uh, help them educationally, to help them learn and to grow. And most importantly, it's also to disciple them, to let them hear the message of Jesus Christ and respond. And I've been able to travel to several of our projects in the last year uh, to be able to see the difference it makes when, you know, the way I tell it is poverty tells these children that you don't matter and nobody cares. But what we're able to do is walk alongside them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, you matter and somebody cares. And it makes all the difference in the world, um, and so that's what I get to do. I, it's a it's a joy to be able to uh, be the spokesperson for those children, and so I get to I still get to do ministry. I get to be in churches and I get to engage with people and challenge them to uh, engage with what God's doing around the world. And then I also get to go be with those children and go to the people that are working with those children and see what God's doing in their lives. So it's fun. It's a great adventure, but you know, when we do adventures, we, different people travel differently, right? Um, some people, um, my wife's family, when she was growing up, this is my wife, Debbie, up here in the front row, um, so she's along with us. When she, her, she went on vacations when she was a child, her parents would say, let's all get in the car. they go, where are we going? We don't know. Let's just go. That would drive me crazy, Right? You know, when I take a trip, um, even now I get to travel a lot. It's like I've got to make sure, you know, everything, what time do I have to be at the airport to be able to make my flight? Or what time do I have to be at the church in the morning when I'm, and everything's kind of, do I have time? If I'm going to make a Starbucks stop, I have to make sure I've got enough time. You know, everything's arranged um, for my day, for my trip. I've got the hotel reservations. I have whatever I need to do, it's laid out. Matter of fact, when our children were small, when we would take vacation, my goal of uh, the trip was get to, from point A to point B as efficiently as you can, right? Even if the kids are like going, Dad, what's that over there? Can we stop at, no, no, we cannot see the world's largest ball of twine. No, we're not going to stop at that historical lands, land, landmark. Or for my wife, no, we're stop, not stopping at that outlet mall. It was get point A. Point B, as quickly and efficiently as possible. As a matter of fact, when we had needed to stop for gas, I would arrange beforehand what needed to happen. Who needs to go to the restroom? Who needs to run in and get a candy bar or snack or if we're doing lunch, and it was like, okay, while I'm filling up the car with gas. You guys do all that. Wheels are rolling in seven minutes. Let's go. Because we cannot stop longer than seven minutes because all those cars we just passed out on the interstate are going to be passing us. So we've got to get out there. And so it was like a NASCAR pit stop. You know, you do the windows. Okay, check the tires. Okay, we got that. You get the candy bar. You get the drinks. And we all jump in, and we'd be halfway down the road. And I go, did we get everybody? And only a couple times did we leave a kid, okay? That was a few times I had to go back and pick up somebody, but it was, you know, they forgave me eventually. Or they've talked about it in counseling as adults. One of the two, um, they're they're fine. But um, we all approach trips or adventures differently. I like to have all the facts in front of me. Other people are like, I'm okay, we just having a few. Have you ever been given um, instructions or assignments and you've only been given partial instructions? It's just enough to kind of get you started. Maybe it's you're uh, fixing something for dinner and you kind of just have the vague notion of this is the ingredients for the recipe, but I'm going to kind of have to wing it here. And there's some people who are good at winging it and it's marvelous. Other people, you wing it and you're like, I don't know what that is. It's gray. What, do you, what, what happens? Or you, one, my dad, once when I was a kid, I remember, um, it was my assignment now it had finally fell on me. I was the fourth child, the third son, and it was now my turn to take over the responsibilities for cutting the grass. And I can remember, you know, I'd cut the grass, you know, to kind of the best I could. And my dad's kind of like going, you know, well, and he, what he's trying to say is don't cut the grass the same direction every time. You know, one time cut it, you know, at this angle, next time cut it at this angle. That's what he wanted to say. So, they kind of, so the grass would look nicer and you don't, you know, it doesn't get down and you don't get the rows that are, he said, it looks nicer if you cut it one day, we cut it that direction. And so he's wanting me to cut it at an angle so I could do it two different angles to make it look nice. But what he said to me is, don't just keep cutting the grass in straight lines. What my 12-year-old mind heard was, he wants me to zigzag. Or just, so it's like, okay, I'll do that. And so now I'm cutting the grass, kind of, you know, it's kind of, okay, let's see. And he comes home and he's like, what in the world? You know, because not only did I do it in zigzag, but as a 12-year-old, it was like there were clumps of, you know, whole strips of grass that I missed. So, you know, there's some grass that's this tall, some grass that's this tall, and a lot going... And, you know, it looks like we let out a herd of goats in the front yard and just kind of... They did their thing. And he's like, that was not really what I meant. That's not what I was talking about. And he had to kind of show me what he was talking about for me. How have you ever been in a situation where you only got partial instructions? Now, for some... Reading the Bible is kind of like that. We kind of, or the Christian lifestyle, we kind of feel like you know, there's, God has given me enough to get started, but what I'm really wanting is I want the final answer. I want all the details. Wouldn't it be great in life if you know we are able to have a sit down with God and God tells us, okay, here's what it is. Is you know, you're going to start out here. A few years later, this is what's going to happen. This is the decisions you need to make here. And you do this here, this here. And by the time you get here, you are going to be a success. If you do everything that I say, you will be successful. You will live out your life and be happy, well-fed, accomplish all your dreams, all your goals. Things are going to be, wouldn't that be great if God kind of laid it all out for us like that? But sometimes we got, I kind of have to take it day by day. I've got to be able to follow God where he's leading today. And sometimes he brings surprises. It's that, you know, unexpected and anticipated stop along the journey, along the trip, or it's that detour going, wait, I didn't plan for the road to be closed here, or I didn't plan for the traffic, or, I didn't, you know, And so the unexpected and anti- When I'm reading the Gospels... And when I'm reading, the, that's kind of the sense I get is God's like telling, giving us directions. It kind of gets us started, but I'm wanting the whole thing laid out. And God's just saying, trust me for the, today's journey. Trust me for today's provision. Trust me for today's instructions. That's why I love the gospel of Luke. You guys have been going through the gospel of Luke it's actually of I, if you have to have a favorite it's kind of like your kids you know i love them all the same right you know they're each unique they're each different i love them all the same but there's some that you kind of gravitate towards maybe for certain events it's kind of the way i feel about the gospels luke happens to be the gospel i like to gravitate to the most and there's a, there's several reasons for that first of all Luke, and I don't know if uh, you've realized this or if Pastor Jeff uh, told you about it, Luke is credited with writing more of the New Testament than any other person. Did you realize that? Now, most people think, well, Paul wrote more books, right? He wrote most of the New Testament. Well, he did write more books, but if you take it by the amount of words, the text, Luke in the Gospel of Luke and and the book of Acts has written about, 27% of the New Testament, which makes him the one author that's written more than any other in the New Testament. The second thing that I like about Luke is the fact that he is most likely a Gentile, which makes him the only Gentile writer of the entire Bible. All the other authors are most likely uh, are Jewish, And Luke alone is probably the only Gentile who has written for us, and as such, kind of gives us a perspective because you know, for unless there are any Jews here today, we're Gentiles, and so it's like I can identify. And he's trying to happen to make sense of what Jesus has said, what he did, and who he, what he's wanting us to do, and that for that I'm like going, I I can identify. Luke is the only gospel writer that didn't know Jesus, who wasn't around when Jesus was actually walking this earth, who wasn't with him. He was in the area of Asia in Troas um, while Jesus was around. He only came to know Jesus through the apostle Paul. And then he travels around with the Apostle Paul for a few years. We pick that up in Acts chapter 16 where we have what is called the we passages. He starts using uh, the, the personal pronouns instead of they and he, it was we and us. So we identify going whoever wrote the book of Acts, Luke, was now with Paul as he's traveling. And we kind of pick up, oh, he's one of Paul's traveling companions, And we get Luke traveling around with Paul for a while. He most likely gets placed in Philippi um, for a few years while Paul goes on to Greece. When Paul comes back through on his way to Jerusalem, he picks up Luke again and he heads to Jerusalem. And so while this is Luke's first time to go into the land where Jesus walked. And while Paul is in Jerusalem... There are people who rise up against him, Paul is arrested, and he now spends the next couple of years in captivity, and Luke is along for the ride, and Luke is there. And I, one of the things that I get to do still is um, when I was uh, teaching at North Central, started a relationship with an organization called the Center for Holy Land Studies and started leading groups and trips, uh, whether it was students, it's pastors and people, uh, that I get to lead people over to Israel and uh, guide them. And uh, so I, I get to go over there, and I get to help people walk where Jesus walked and hear the stories. And part of my goal is to let people understand, what was Jesus doing? And I tell people that one of the things that I hear people say all the time is, when I get to heaven, I want to sit down and I want to talk with, now fill in the blank. And it could be, I want to talk with Luke. I want to talk to John the Baptist. I want to talk with Moses and Abraham. I, I want to find, and we want to identify with these characters in the Bible. And I tell people there's one character in the Bible that we can still interact with today, and that's the land. You know, all the people, they're, they're gone. They're With God, they're in heaven. We'll get to see them one day. But the land, we and we can kind of identify, and that's where Luke was. He wasn't around when Jesus was walking. He wasn't there. He might have been alive uh, during that, but he wasn't there. He didn't hear Jesus preach. He didn't see Jesus perform miracles. And so while Paul is in prison in he first in Jerusalem, then they take him to a city called Caesarea. Which was a Roman city on the sea uh, the Mediterranean Sea, and Paul's imprisoned there for at least two years. Luke is with him. And you wonder, what was Luke doing for two years while Paul's in prison in Caesarea? Now, some we don't know what he did. But we do know from the gospel of Luke and from the beginning, he's saying, I have studied all these things. I have talked to eyewitnesses so that I can write down an accurate account of what Jesus did, who Jesus was, and what he said, and what he wants you to do. And so Luke is able to talk to the people who come to visit Paul. I think he spent the two years maybe traveling to Jerusalem. It's about a day's journey from from Caesarea if you're going by foot. And he goes to Jerusalem and he talks to Peter and the other disciples that are hanging there. I think he might have traveled maybe the two-day journey from Caesarea up into the area of Galilee to talk about the people who heard Jesus preach and perform the miracles. He was doing his research to find out who was this Jesus and what did he teach and what does he want me to do. He was asking some very important questions. Kind of, again, I identify. He's wanting to put all the data together to try to understand. And that's why I appreciate the Gospel of Luke, because he brought it all together for us. And in many ways, if you read through all the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke is much more historical than the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, were written, again, by Jewish writers, but every person who writes, writes with an agenda. They want to tell a story to a specific audience. So you have Matthew, who's largely writing to other Jews. You have Mark, who is writing to Romans, who are probably Roman Jews and that's it. You have John, who's writing more theology than he is history, and alone you have Luke, who even historians who have no belief in Jesus Christ will say that Luke was an excellent historian. If you take what he learned and what he communicates, you get a much more historically accurate picture of what's going on than any of the other writers in the New Testament. I love that. And that brings us to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, where are we in the story? What happens is Jesus um, in Luke chapter uh, 9 has made the decision, I'm going to head to Jerusalem. His days are uh, pointing towards the end. He realizes that. He has communicated that to his disciples. And he starts to head towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And this is the last time Jesus is going to be heading towards Jerusalem. And he's going through Samaria, which is between Galilee, which is to the north, and Jerusalem, which is in the south. And he travels through. So he sends some people on ahead of him to the Samaritan villages in chapter 9. He says, prepare, kind of get things ready for me as I come. It's interesting to note Jesus wasn't traveling alone. So this preparation, this adventure he's going on, it's not just him. As a matter of fact, it's not just his 12 disciples. It's not Jesus and the band of 12. Because we read as he's going on into Samaria, they weren't ready to receive him and his entourage. And so he had to go to the next city. We find in uh, the beginning of Luke chapter 10, Jesus sending out 72 people, two by two, into the surrounding villages to go and to heal people and tell them the kingdom of God is near. So like I said, he wasn't just traveling with his 12. He sent out another 72 people. So he think of this. This group is traveling at least... 84 strong, 85 strong that we know of. Now, probably you're talking, they probably didn't count maybe everybody that was traveling with them. Probably there were kids all along when they traveled. They traveled with the village. Everybody was traveling to head towards Jerusalem for the Passover is where they're going. And so Jesus is going with this pretty large crowd through some... No wonder the village is going, oh, no, not here. There's, no, nope, don't stay here. That's too much trouble. You know, Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. And uh, Anyway, so they're like, no, dude, let, let's don't do that. And so he sends these 72 people out two by two. They eventually go out and minister. They come back with reports and say, listen, you would not believe what happened. When we prayed for people, they were healed. And Jesus is saying, well, what I saw, I saw Satan fall. I saw that like lightning come from the sky. You guys are awesome. As a matter of fact, he goes into rejoicing. He said, God's awesome. What God is doing through you is Wonderful. The harvest field is ready to be harvested. And as you guys went out, I saw it happening. he's rejoicing. And while he's, he's rejoicing, in Luke chapter 10, and I want to read it to you, a young lawyer steps up and he has a question for Jesus. And so as he's traveling along, this is a wonderful thing about iPads is they can freeze on you. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we read, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Get this question. He's like me. He's wanting to know the ultimate answer. I want I to I know how to get from point A, where I'm at now, to the end of my destination to point B. I just don't want to know what I need to do today. I want to know how do I inherit eternal life? How am I a success? How do I please God? Now, this question this type gets asked a couple times to Jesus. In other Gospels, the same question gets asked. It gets asked in a couple different ways. There's a rich young ruler that comes and asks, what must they do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him in Matthew, in Mark, and again in Luke, Luke chapter 18, he tells them, here's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. Go and sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And the young lawyer, if you remember the story, goes, wow, that's rough. Who can do that? And he turns away Disappointed. Here, this lawyer gets up and he asks the question, what must I do to eternal life? What must I do to succeed, to please God? Now, Jesus turns the question because he said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Brilliant teaching move college professor. My wife's a middle school teacher. It's a good way when a student has a question, turn it around and see if they can struggle with it. See if they can come up with the answer and figure it out on their own. Because it's much better for them to learn how to figure it out on their own than you just give them the answer. Usually they're not going to remember that if you just give it to them. They have to remember. But if they can figure it out, they go, I've got it. And so Jesus does that to the lawyer. You know the law. You have read it. What does it say? And the lawyer, he responds, well, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That was the right answer. And where did he get it from? It's actually pretty easy. For Jewish people, actually, even today, but especially in ancient Judaism in the first century, they would pray this prayer several times a day. It's called the Shema. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, starts in verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And Jesus is saying, that is the right answer. That is what you're supposed to do to, etern- to inherit eternal life. It matches in Matthew and in Mark when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? His response is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And so he answers. and then the lawyer says, and he adds, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Where'd that come from? Where? Why did he add, and your neighbor as yourself? In the Old Testament, back in the first five books of the Bible, it's called we call it the Pentateuch, the first five, or um, the Torah, the law. That's what really the scripture verses for ancient Jews, uh, for Jesus, the law, the Torah was of the highest regard. It was, that was what this law, young lawyer studied. And in the Torah, there are only three commands that begin with the words, the phrase, the, com- the command, and you shall love. Only three. Deuteronomy 6.5, we already read it. And you shall love, the Hebrew word, vahavta, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Leviticus 19.18 is... And you shall love your neighbor who is like yourself. Now, we often interpret that as, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we kind of say, because we love ourselves so much, we should love our neighbors just as much as we like ourselves. Well, that's not actually what it means. It means, you shall love your neighbor who is like you. In other words, we are more like each other than any of us are like God. Right? So, if we really say, oh, I love God and we don't love our neighbor, how can we say that? Because we are more like each other, and if we can't love somebody who is like us, then how can we like somebody who is way beyond us? And that's where we get teaching in the New Testament about you can't say you love God and hate your neighbor. You have to be able to love. And so, there's the vahavta, and you shall love. That's one of the three commandments that starts with that, and you shall love. You shall love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. Now, the lawyer goes on because he's like saying, okay, I'm pretty proud of myself now. I have answered this correctly. So, Jesus, we pick it up. Desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, "'So who's my neighbor?' And Jesus replied, "'A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, "'and he fell among robbers who stripped him "'and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. "'Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, "'and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. "'So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place "'and saw him, passed by on the other side.' But a Samaritan, remember what I just said about Samaritans and Jews not getting along, so this is kind of like draws people's attention into it. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? And now of course the Jewish lawyer couldn't even muster the word the Samaritan He couldn't even say it. He had to say, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, this, I love this parable because this parable truly shows the genius of Jesus. First of all, teaching in parables was a uniquely Jewish thing in the first century. It doesn't come from any other culture. It's totally Jewish. Every parable we know of comes in Hebrew. So most likely, Jesus is not speaking Aramaic. He's not speaking Greek here, which Greek was what this gospel's written in. He's speaking Hebrew. So probably he is using the words Va'hafta, the Hebrew word, so pulling people right back to Torah. And the uniqueness of Jesus' teaching here is, I told you there were three commands in the Torah where it says, and you shall love. Remember that? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does anybody in here trying to go on, wait, he said three and he, he left that one off. Anybody think it was a little, bit un, a little bit incomplete, Right. I'm going to tell you where it is right now. Good. You're the kind of I need to know the answers. I got to have the end of the journey ready, ready for you. In Deuteronomy 10:19, it's also repeated in Leviticus 19:34. It's and you shall love the stranger, the one who is wandering, strange. He's lost in your land. The one in need. And notice the lawyer had left that one off. But Jesus included it when he's told him a parable. He talked about the man who was traveling and fell among thieves, was left for dead. And here comes a Levite, a Levite from the tribe of Levi, who were supposed to be priests in uh, the, the religious people of the time. But he was either too busy... Or he didn't want to touch somebody who was going to die because if a Jewish person touched somebody who was dead, he would be ritually impure and therefore couldn't go on into Jerusalem into the temple and be able to perform his duties as a Levite. And so maybe he's like, well, even if a person is going to die, if you touch him to help him and he dies later, you're still ritually impure. So maybe he had an excuse. I have some things to do. God wants me to do that. So I'm pretty busy, so he didn't want to touch the priest walks by, same kind of thing. Whether he's, We don't know why, but they both walk on the other side of the road. It wasn't until, and here again, here's the irony of Jesus' teaching. He puts the foreigner as the hero of the story. The one to show mercy is the one who proves to be the good neighbor. It's the Samaritan who walks along the road and sees the person left for dead and tends to his wounds, meets his needs, puts them on his own animal and takes them to an inn, takes the money out of his own pocket to give and say, take care of him, and if it costs more than this, I will be back and I will repay you anything it costs to help return this man to health, to strength, to wholeness. And then Jesus turns around to this lawyer and he says, you do the same. These characters here in this whole parable are kind of ironic. Um, In some ancient Jewish literature um, from the 1st century and more to 2nd, 3rd, 4th century um, called the Mishnah, there's a a story or a teaching in one of the, the books of the Mishnah that talks about the different types of people there are in the world. And it says there are four different types of people in the world. One that says, mine is mine and yours is yours. This is the neutral type of person. In other words, this is all of us. He talks about this is the, they, say, they call it, this is the Sodom type, from Sodom and Gomorrah type of person. We all have that in us. You take care of your stuff. I'll take care of my stuff. The two don't have to meet. That's just Natural. Then there's a second type of person. This is the person who says, what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. He says, this is the stupid person, the unlearned. This is this person who doesn't really, kind of confused. Um, Third, the third type of person says, what is mine is mine, and what is yours is mine. This is the wicked person. He said, then there's the righteous or the pious person. And he's the one that says, what's mine is yours, and what's yours is yours. So if you have a need, I will reach into my pocket, and I will help meet it. And we see this in this parable. Jesus is essentially what the thieves come along, and they say, what's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine, so I'm going to take it. We also see the religious people, the priests and the Levite, who say, what's yours is yours, what's mine is mine, your problems are your problems, my problems are my problems. If I stop for you, that means I'm not going to get to my destination in time, so I'm going to just keep on my way. And We call this Minnesota nice up here, right? I always tell people, if you want to describe Minnesota nice, this is what it is. If somebody tripped and fell on the sidewalk, Minnesota nice means I'm going to look the other way as to not embarrass them. I'm not going to help them, but I'm not going to embarrass them either. I'm just going to kind of look the other way. What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. Let's just keep it that way. And that's kind of, again, that's, that's our default. But it's the righteous person that says what's yours is yours. What's mine is yours. If you were in need, let me give. Let me help. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus really sums up the, and you shall love. Yes, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Yes, you shall love your neighbors, yourself. But you should also love the stranger, the one in need among us. And it's unique on Jesus' part. It's only on the lips of Jesus, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, that we also have, and you shall love your enemy, even the one who persecutes you. And really the questions that come is, if I want to be successful, how do I get there? How do I inherit eternal life? How do I get to the end of my journey, my adventure? And Jesus is saying, don't worry about the end of the adventure. Don't worry about the destination so much as the direction. Let each day take care of itself. Let's Give us this day our daily bread. Don't worry about tomorrow's bread. Worry about today. And he's also saying here in the parable of the good Samaritan, if you want to walk in the right direction, here's the answer: today, love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Love your neighbors yourself, but also love the one in need. Love the stranger. Love the one that happens to come in and maybe mess up your journey and your plans for the day. But what God's saying is if you show love to those that are in need, those that interrupt you, those that are inconvenient, you're heading in the right direction. And that's what it's about, to show the love of God. Now, what I would say today is maybe the challenge for us is to think about today. How can we show our love for God, our love for others, our neighbors, and our love for those that might interrupt our plans for the day, those that are in need? Because he always puts those types of people in our way, whether it's today, it might be tomorrow. And to pray for God's grace to help us recognize it And share his love. Because the great teaching, Jesus is a great teacher. If we just followed that teaching, we would make a difference in this world just by loving other people and meeting needs. But here's the great thing about the love of God. The love of God isn't just a practical, humanistic thing that we do, just be nice to other people because there is something supernatural there is something spiritual that happens when we share the love of Christ with other people. He comes into the lo- into our lives and he makes all the difference in the world. He did that for the evangelist Luke. He interrupted his life and changed it forever to the point where it was Luke who because of this divine delay in Caesarea was able to gather the information and write it down for us to learn to grow. He interrupts our lives, and he makes all the difference in the world because miraculously he interrupts our lives, and even if it seems like an inconvenience, we look back and we realize it's a blessing. We realize that God uses us, and God makes us stronger, and helps us to grow, and helps us to be a success in ways that we never imagined. He supernaturally leads us and guides us. And so when we share the love of God to those that are around us and to those that are in need, we share Jesus Christ in a significant, supernatural way. And as Luke tells us through his gospel, Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world if we understand what he's calling us to do and what he's calling us to be in this life. And that's to share his love with all those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and for his love. In fact, he shared the greatest love of all by giving his own life for others. And he teaches us and he calls us to share that same type of selfless, sacrificial love to those around us, to our neighbors, to the stranger, to the one in need even to our enemies. And if we could live out that, what a difference you can make in our lives, in our families, in our community, and in our world. Lord, I pray for the grace to be able to do that today. May we know your love and share your love today and throughout this week. In Jesus' name, amen.